This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. This is Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Thanks for spending part of your day with us. Well, as World War I was getting going, women played a vital role in the preparation for the United States. Part of that included the preparation of watches and other elements that could glow in the dark. The U.S. Radium Corporation had women paint radium on the numbers and hands of watches. By the end of the workday, the hands of these women would glow. The other big issue was that the substance that made them glow just happened to be radioactive. This obviously led to quite a few medical issues, including some deaths, but it also led to lawsuits against the companies involved in this. There is a new book out that takes a look at that story. It is called The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Kate Moore is the author of that book, as she has detailed this, uh, which is an interesting story coming off of a play that actually had been put into uh, into market uh, overseas. Uh, and we're going to be talking with Kate in just a second about her book, uh, The Radium Girls, which is an, a fantastic story of the history of uh, the early parts of the 20th century uh, here in the United States. And it is a great pleasure to have Kate Moore joining us on the show right now. Kate, welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. So I guess let's go with the backstory first as to how you really came upon this story in the first place. Well, I had the privilege of directing a play about the Radium Girls. So there's a play called The Shining Lives by Melanie Marnich, and I directed it in London in 2015, so almost three years ago now. And I just fell in love with this inspiring story of these incredible, ordinary women doing extraordinary things in standing up for themselves and fighting for justice. And I was really shocked to discover that there was no nonfiction book about them that concentrated on the women themselves and told their personal stories. And so that's how I came to the story. And I realized as I was directing the play, you know, these women are amazing. How is there not a book? And so I decided to write one for them to ensure that their stories were remembered. But I I guess that there have been other stories told about this, but it's more looked at the impact on the legal side of things or or the medical side, correct? Not not necessarily their stories themselves. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, the the topic of the Radium Girl story is you know, hugely broad and, you know, other writers have taken the story and, as you say, focused on, for example, the labour law reforms that the Radium Girls legal cases brought about, whereby they, you know, ensured that other workers who came after them had legal protections, which they themselves didn't. And other books focused on, you know, the scientific legacy, the fact that these women, as some of the only examples of internal radiation in in the human body that existed, Mm -hmm. you know, the scientific legacy these girls left us, you know, books had talked about that. But what I was interested in was not necessarily the law or the science, even though those elements are in my book. What I was interested in was the women. It was Grace Fryer. It was Catherine Donahue. It was Catherine Sharp. And I wanted people to know their individual personal stories and tragedies, because for me, that was 
the kind of key element of the story. I, I fell in love with these girls, you know, kind of woman to woman, and I wanted to chart their personal experiences and not just the amazing legal and scientific legacy that the Radium girls have left us. How long was was this going on for these women that the, that they were dealing that they were in these plants and and they were doing these jobs to begin with? Well, one of the things about the story that made it so remarkable was the insidious nature of radiation poisoning that they got from being radium girls. Right. So the, we're talking the kind of period of history we're talking here is the First World War and into the Roaring Twenties. And at that time, radium was considered a wonder drug. If you went down to a drugstore, you could buy pills, radium pills to treat your hay fever, or you could buy, you know, radium infused chocolate that, you know, in the same way that we kind of have chili chocolate today to give it a bit more pep. You know, that's why people ate radium chocolate. The rich and famous would go to radium spas and drink radium-infused water as a kind of health tonic. So these girls initially, during the First World War and Roaring Twenties, thought they were incredibly lucky to be working with this miraculous substance that was not only beneficial to health, but also glamorous and lucrative. And it was only sort of, to begin with, it was about five years after they were working in these radium dial factories, painting watches and clocks with this glow-in-the-dark radium paint. About five years later, they started to get sick. But because it was taking so long for the poisoning to show themselves, to show itself, it was very difficult for the girls to draw the connections between their workplace and their illness. And in fact, some girls didn't get sick until decades later. So that was part of the incredible, you know, journey that these radium girls went on, the battle for justice and for recognition that their work had poisoned and in some cases killed them. Well, and the medical part of this, obviously dealing with all the medical issues and you lay it out. Uh, incredibly in the fact that I guess their bones became brittle, uh, their their jaws were easily broken, teeth were falling out, obviously a variety of medical issues, uh, issues uh, consistent bleeding uh, from, from being involved in this? Yeah, I mean, it, it's one of the most horrific poisonings you can imagine. What happens when you ingest radium and the important thing to say about how the radium girls were taught to do their job is that the most efficient way of painting those numbers with this glow-in-the-dark paint was to put the paintbrushes between their lips to make a fine point. That's what they were taught to do. And they checked, you know, May Cubberley, one of the women I write about, she said the first thing we asked was, does this stuff hurt you? And they said it was safe. So the girls were licking their brushes, you know, every, you know, kind of couple of times a number sometimes, you know. And so they were ingesting the radium. And what was happening is that the radium was settling in their bones. It could be in their jawbone, as you've rightly said, so that their, you know, jawbones literally splintered and came out. They lost their teeth. But it was also in their legs, in their spines. And the radium was literally destroying the bones while the women were still alive. And then later on in this horrific poisoning, some of the women found that they got bone cancers and tumours. And these tumours would be enormous in size. You know, one woman, Irene Laporte, had a pelvic tumour. And her doctor, Harrison Martland, said that the tumour was the size of two footballs at the time she died. 
it was, you know, it's horrific. And this is all happening while the girls are still alive, that they're seeing these tumours sprout, they're seeing their teeth fall out. You know, it's just horrific. This is all happening while they're still alive. And one of the tabloid sort of nicknames for them was um, the Society of the Living Dead. And that's almost how people saw them. They, You know, their bodies were dying but they were still alive, you know, these strong, spirited women, courageous women, battling for this recognition and injustice and, and for workers' rights and doing it all while they're in incredible pain and literally seeing their bodies falling apart. And, and I would imagine, and by the way, the, the the piece that got me was the point about them licking the brushes and, and, yeah. and basically ingest. I, I mean, I, I I just saw that and I was like, I, I can't believe that this was going on. And obviously, as you alluded to, uh, the companies knew what was going on. Uh, I guess the question is, when did the women start to understand? I mean, obviously, they were getting sick, but they obviously knew each other from working in these plants. When did they start mm. to realize that it was them as a group that were getting sick and that it was probably because of what they had been doing? Yeah, I mean, you've kind of hit the nail on the head there, the fact that it was this group of friends, you know, often sisters as well. You know, one of the heartbreaking things for me about the story of the Radium Girls is because they all thought they were so privileged to to work with this substance and to, to have these amazing jobs, they encouraged their sisters and friends to work in the same factory. So the Magia family, for example, um, lost at least four daughters to this, horrific poisoning but because of those family connections and those friendships it was the girls talking to each other that really brought this to the fore and you know rumors started flying around and just to mention something to you specifically you know once the girls were discussing it once they were sort of get, you know, getting their dentist, for example, to confront the company. The company decided, well, this is bad for business because the rumor mill was you know, in such overdrive that yeah. they started to struggle to get workers. And so the company commissioned a study led by Cecil Drinker, um, who is actually a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania. And he was the one that first officially made the link between the work that the girls were doing and the fact that it was the radium that had hurt them. But you also mentioned the fact that I guess there was a different approach uh, in these plants for how women were were uh, were watched over on this work and how men were. I, I guess to a degree the men understood the potential trouble that we were looking at and the women weren't given that information and didn't really know, correct? Yeah, that is correct. You know, what is extraordinary to think about is in the company that was working in New Jersey, in Orange, New Jersey, the men in the labs were given protective equipment from this radioactive substance. So they wore lead aprons. They weren't allowed to touch the radium with their bare hands. And meanwhile, you know, literally in the next building, the dial painters are, you know, literally licking their brushes and swallowing the radium. Now, the difference was because people knew that a large amount of radium was dangerous. You know, my book opens in 1901 with a scientist carrying a vial of radium in his waistcoat pocket, and he gets a radiation burn from carrying it. So people knew from the turn of the century that radium was incredibly dangerous, incredibly powerful with all these radioactive rays that it sends out. But what happened was, you know, I think this is kind of, 
typical in some ways of science and people, you know, wondering, you know, particularly in that era, you know, we're discovering new elements. Yes, they're dangerous, but what else can they do? And so the industry that I've talked of, you know, the radium in chocolate and the health industry that, that sprung up around it was predicated by the companies, those companies employing the girls who wanted to use just a tiny amount of this very powerful, very dangerous substance and see if that power could be channeled into, for example, making humans immortal. That's why people were drinking this radium water, believing that the powerful radium, you know, could give them longevity of life. But all the research conducted into, well, is a small amount safe or not, was funded by the companies that were making all the money out of the industry. So they ignored any evidence that said a small amount was unsafe and they only pushed the message that a small amount was beneficial. So that's why the girls weren't given protection. It's why they were encouraged to lick their brushes because Mm. the radium firms wanted to send out the message that a small amount of radium was safe. You will never read, you know, when I was doing my research in the newspapers, the newspapers were celebrating radium as this health giver, but you would never, ever read about the fact that the lab workers, the male lab workers, are being protected by it because people didn't want to write about that. They didn't want to write about the danger. You know, it's almost identical to the tobacco industry. And it was funny when I was researching these newspaper, you know, stories about the radium cells from the 1920s and 1930s, because alongside the articles about the women were advertisements for cigarettes, saying, you know, a cigarette a day will keep the doctor away. And it was exactly the same thing happening with radium a little bit earlier. But but I, I, I read that, I guess, you were finding out information that, uh, in terms of, of what happened and the mm-hmm. deniability that I, I guess the companies kind of played with and, and other people played with, that even up until, what, about 40 years ago or maybe 45 years ago, uh, they were still denying what the actual reasons were for a lot of these illnesses occurring, correct? Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost, a, a, a you know, it's a horrifying cyclical tale in a way because even when the dangers were known, not all the workers were told. You know, sometimes they were they were told, okay, it was the lip pointing that hurt the women. But, you know, radium itself is, is fine to have around. Right. Whereas, of course, that's not true at all. But, yes, you look at some of the factories from, say, the 1970s, and some of them are discharging radioactive waste, um, you know, through a venting system that is discharging above a children's playground. You know, the workers are drinking cans of Coke and things like that in their workroom. You know, there's a a kind of dispensing vending machine in their workroom. So they're eating and drinking while they're handling radioactive substance. I mean, it's truly shocking that, you know, and I think what it does is it proves how important it is to listen to these lessons from history because the girls that I write about in my book, Catherine and Grace, that I talked about earlier, you know, they were suffering and sacrificing in the 1920s and 1930s and you would hope that those lessons would be learned but as we're seeing even today in 2017 you know people are trying to roll back regulations and so on and I think the radium girls really illustrate for us the dangers 
of that and why regulations are absolutely necessary. Well, how was it that 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 specific case, the Radium Girls, actually, from what you say, started the change in terms of uh, of uh, of uh, you know people working in the in the workplace and how they were being treated and the mistakes that were being made and the regulations that really came forth, you know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. Absolutely. They're, they're absolutely integral to it. And this is why I think they're so extraordinary, because as I say, these were ordinary women. You know, the vile painters were drawn. They tended to be teenagers when they were painting for a start, but they tended to be drawn from poor working class um, immigrant backgrounds. And yet, despite that sort of disadvantage in terms of the power structure of the country, actually, they've left this incredible legacy, you know, the Radium Girls finding the courage to take their companies to court meant that theirs was one of the first cases where an employer was held responsible for the health of their employees. And in terms of safety standards in radioactive industries, yeah. you know, none of the way that workers are protected today would have happened if it wasn't for the courage of the Radium Girls and their tenacity in making sure that people knew what had happened to them. It was because of what happened to them that workers were protected, for example, on the Manhattan Project. And workers today, you know, wear those um, dossimeters that, that, you know, register how much exposure a worker has had. All of that stems from the Radium Girls. Because of what they sacrificed, changes were made to protect other workers. And I think one of my very, very favorite quotations from the book, and the book is filled with first-person accounts from these girls, you know, their diaries, their letters, their court testimonies, their newspaper interviews from the time. My favourite quote is from Grace Fryer, and she says when she's, you know, it's kind of in, in the wake of the court case, and, you know, she's asked, why, why have you done this? Why have you dared to stick your head above the parapet and go after the company? And she said, it's not for myself that I am thinking, but for the hundreds of other girls to whom this may serve as an example. And for me, what's truly extraordinary about the Radium Girls is the altruism in the way that they pursued this fight for justice because we've talked about the horrific nature of the poisoning you know usually a fatal poisoning and despite the fact there was no hope for them they would stop at nothing to hold these companies to account because they knew if they didn't other people would be hurt and it's thanks to them even today that we feel ramifications of their courageous decision. Well I can't imagine what it was like for for those women that were working these facilities uh, who were married at the time Uh, you know what what it was like for the other members of their families to have to deal with this basically knowing uh, what happened and the fact that that, you know their their loved one was was basically logged locked into death. You, you, you completely got it. And, and this was what so, you know, it broke my heart to, to read their stories, to read about the husbands that had to bury beloved wives, to read about the children who lost their mothers. You know, this is, as I say, it's a personal tragedy. You know, yes, there's a legacy of workers' rights and yes, there's a legacy of science. But it was those human stories and tragedies that, for me, I really wanted to shine a light on them and, and for people to realize what the individuals at the center of this case went through. You know, I dedicated the book to the dial painters and those who loved them. And within the pages of the book, you hear from the girls themselves, but also from their mothers, 
their fathers, their husbands, their children. I tracked down their relatives and interviewed sons, daughters, nieces, nephews, grandchildren, because I really wanted to know who these women were. And, yeah, I mean, you, you can't even imagine the heartbreak and horror that it must have inflicted on these families seeing their loved ones, you know, disintegrate yeah. before them, knowing that death awaited and only death. What like, was just, yeah. What was the outcome of all the lawsuits that were brought forward? Well, there were numerous outcomes, but ultimately, I'm pleased to say the Radium Girls did win their case. So there was a kind of moral judgment that the company had been at fault. And, you know, what these companies do just, you can't think how the executives could have the, you know, moral or the lack of morals to act in the way that they do, you know, covering up any reports and connections that prove that what the girls is saying is true. You know, they hire private detectives to dig up dirt on them. They lie about women. They cast slurs on their reputations. You know, it's an aggressive campaign to belittle and undermine them and to try to stop them bringing this to, you know, to the fore, to the public fore. And it's just, yeah, it's just an extraordinary story of courage, ultimately. It is a fantastic story. Kate, thank you very much for giving us some time today. Uh, greatly appreciate thank it. You. Thank, thank you. Ver- thank you so much for shining a light on their story. Thank you. The book is The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women. Kate Moore, the author of the book, is available in bookstores and online now. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 